You know, there are uh, rare moments in life in which the sequel is better than the original. Now, I want to begin the message this morning with a very controversial statement. Frozen 2 is better than the original Frozen. There, I said it. I need you to know. <laughs> it's amazing. Even growing up as a teenager, I grew up watching um, the Rocky movies. You know, I got to see uh, the move from Rocky 1 to Rocky 2. And I was like, yes. Rocky 2 to Rocky 3. Let's go. Rocky 3 to Rocky 4. Come on. Rocky 4 to Rocky 5. Oh, we should have just stopped. There are these moments in which the sequel can be better than the original. You see, a sequel is the continuation of a story. It's when a story begins and all of a sudden it develops and it takes new plot lines, twists and turns that you never saw coming. You see, it's amazing how sequels can begin to unveil this whole new world that you did not know existed when you saw the original story take place. You see, once the original story is written, the sequel builds upon the foundation of what has already been laid. When we get to the book of Acts, we read the sequel. It's part two of an original story written by the same author. And in his second book, Luke tells the story of how what started in the back hills of northern Israel 2,000 years ago began a movement that has gone worldwide and continues to this day through this room and beyond. And that's what we see happening in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to the book of Acts. And as you're turning there, um, I'm wearing a a sport coat today, which is extremely uncomfortable. Uh, It's rare, but it's a a good celebration day. At the end of our next service, we're going to be ordaining uh, six men as new deacons within our church. And you can see the, the stools lined up behind me. Uh, We'll have a time in which pastors and other leaders in our church are going to be washing the feet uh, of these new men who are going to be serving as deacons within our church. They'll be presented a Bible because everything that we do as a church, we want to be biblical and faithful to the scriptures. They'll also be given a towel in which a picture of the role of a deacon is a man who serves, a man who washes feet, a man who meets the needs of the local church. Healthy organizations, whether it's a family or a business or a school system, is based upon the health of its leadership. The healthier the leadership, the healthier the organization, and that's true for a local church. And God has been so kind to our church to give our church multiple pastors and deacons who are faithful and humble, and God has been so kind to give us these men. So we'll be celebrating that today at the end of the next service. I do want to encourage you that if you've not downloaded the Westwood app, that you would do so because there's all kinds of resources that we're going to be having there as we go through the book of Acts together as we study this great text of Scripture. So today we got this new sermon series. It's entitled Since. This idea of studying this great book of how God is on mission to redeem people all over the world. He is the God who sent his son to save his people. He is the God who sent his spirit to seal and sanctify his people. And that he sent his people all over the world with the good news about the kingdom. 
What we see in this, throughout the scriptures is that God is a missionary God. He pursues, he comes after you to rescue you from your sin. Jesus, the eternal son of God and son of man was the first missionary. He was sent to rescue you through the gospel. So I'm excited about unpacking this text together, this great book that we see in scripture. You see, Acts is an incredible book that records the true events of shipwrecks, prison breaks, riots, mobs, beatings, revivals, miraculous healings, courtroom trials before governors, churches being planted, miraculous conversions, prayer that shakes buildings, singing that shakes prisons, preaching that shakes empires, and dead people brought back to life. The book of Acts is the story of how the apostles, empowered by the Spirit, expanded the kingdom of God by taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world through local churches. You see, God is forming these gospel-shaped communities of people who are active in loving God and loving neighbor. And through his new covenant people, God is spreading the gospel throughout the world. We're going to see a man in Acts chapter 8 from Ethiopia who believes the gospel, and we see a movement of the gospel headed towards Africa. We're going to see how the apostles in Acts chapter 19 take the gospel to Asia, and the gospel spreads throughout Asia. We're going to see that the gospel that begins in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 spreads 1,400 miles, as the crow flies, all the way to Rome in chapter 28, as the book comes to a conclusion. The gospel goes forth throughout Europe, Asia, and Africa because the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people of all nations. So let's look and see how this great book begins. In Acts chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. You see, I want you to see this morning in the text, I want you to notice how Luke sets the stage for the book of Acts and what this means for us today. I want you to see first Luke's summation of his gospel account. His summation of his gospel account. He writes, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus. He begins the historical narrative of the book of Acts by addressing his original audience, a man named Theophilus. Who is Theophilus? We don't know a whole lot about this guy. He's got a Greek name, Theophilus, which means loved by God. This is a man who probably is really wealthy. He begins uh, his gospel back in Luke chapter 1, where Luke addresses him and gives him a title. He calls him Most Honorable Theophilus or Most Excellent Theophilus. He's probably a really wealthy Christian who is financially undergirding the writing ministry of Luke. He's the benefactor who's financially supporting Luke so he could gather his information and write his gospel and the book of Acts. We see in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, where he writes, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. 
So it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Luke wrote his gospel by investigating the facts regarding Jesus and his ministry. Like an investigative reporter, he gathered the facts, interviewed eyewitnesses and sources, and he wrote an orderly account. He gathered all the information and then put it in chronological order, which is different than what Mark did in his gospel. Mark has themes based upon geography. When we went through the gospel of Mark together as a faith family, we saw chapters one through eight of Mark are revolved around northern Israel and Jesus's ministry up north. And then chapters nine through 16 take place more in the south. We see Matthew, his themes are a lot different because he's pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, that Jesus is the promised Messiah that the old covenant believers were looking forward to. He is the Messiah they've been looking for. And that's his motif, his focus of his gospel. Well, not Luke. Luke writes his in chronological order. He puts it based upon when these things happened. Why? So that you can have confidence in what you believe. He says that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Luke went through painstaking sacrifice to gather the facts about Jesus and his ministry so that Theophilus and you and I can have confidence in what we believe. You can have confidence in that book in your lap. Indeed, this is the inspired word of God in which he has revealed himself and he has protected and preserved his word for thousands of years so you can bank your soul upon all that it contains. Here in verse one, Luke references the first narrative that he wrote. And it's what you and I know as the gospel of Luke. You see these two books, Luke and Acts go together. Acts is volume two of the two volume set. It's the sequel that picks up where the gospel left off at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Whereas the gospel account examines what happened during the earthly ministry of Jesus, Acts explores what happened after the earthly, earthly ministry of Jesus. So why is it called Acts? Well, there's a lot of different people with a lot of different opinions of where it gets its title. Some call it the Acts of the Apostles. Others call it the Acts of the Word. Others see it as the Acts of the early church. Some see it as the Acts of the Holy Spirit. I'm partial that it encompasses all of them. In fact, I wrote it like this. Acts is the story of how the Spirit of God used the apostles of God to preach the Word of God, to expand the kingdom of God through the church of God. That Luke is beginning here by showing how the actions of the Spirit through the apostles and the Word to expand the kingdom through the church. He begins by pointing out two different parts of Jesus' ministry. Verse 1, I wrote in the first narrative about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Okay, so the actions of Jesus and the words of Jesus. I think that's a healthy balance there. He's not just focusing only on the teachings of Jesus and only on the actions of Jesus, but upon both. And I think that's a good word for you and I, that for some believers, they focus more on the teachings of Jesus. They they care more about what he said and how he taught and the things that were involved or contained within his teachings. 
And there are others who say, it's not, that's not important. Okay? Discipleship isn't as important as serving, the actions, being the hands and feet of Jesus. Well, the answer is we need both. We got to be growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and digging deep into his teachings while simultaneously being people who are active in actions and, and displaying the actions of Jesus through our serving. That our faith is being proven by our works. That we're a people who do both. And it's interesting here how he says, I laid out for you both the, the words of Jesus and the actions of Jesus. And I want you to see that this is who we are to be as followers of Christ, that we are people who emphasize both, that we grow in our knowledge of Christ, and we also are, uh, are active and faithful in our serving of Christ. But the plan of God was not for Jesus to stay on earth permanently, at least not yet. He would return to the Father. He would ascend he would, verse 2, be taken up, but not until he instructed the 11 disciples, the apostles, as to what they are to do. All that they had seen, all that they had heard, all that they had experienced in the life of Jesus, as we see in Luke's gospel, they were now to go and do likewise, the book of Acts. So Luke begins by summing up his gospel account. But the second thing I want you to see in the text is Luke's confirmation of the resurrection. Luke's confirmation of the resurrection. He preaches the gospel right here in the third verse of his book. He points to the death and resurrection of Christ. Verse three, after Jesus had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs. Luke points to the suffering of Jesus, namely his beatings his sufferings, his betrayals, his trials, and ultimately his death on the cross. That Jesus suffered and died in your place. That as our ultimate substitute, Christ is the one who was treated the way you and I should have been treated because of our sin. That indeed Jesus suffered on our behalf. That should have been me and you on trial for our sin. That should have been me and you receiving a beating for our transgressions against God. That should have been me and you who were treated as Christ was treated, but he steps in and he takes it for you. You are so loved by God that Jesus steps in and he goes to the cross on your behalf. You are so loved by Jesus that he dies in your place so that you don't have to. Indeed, he absorbs the full justice that should have been upon us and now falls upon him, that the judgment of God towards your sin is no longer upon you, but upon his son. Oh, the love that God has for you, that even while you and I were rebels against God, we were shaking our fist in his face, going our own path, Jesus steps in and he says, no, 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 I'm gonna take it for you. I want you to know how much you are loved by God. So that through me and through my death on the cross, I can make a way for you to be restored back into a right relationship with God through me. This is what God's done for you in the gospel. He's made a way through the sufferings of his son who goes to the cross on your behalf. This is what we rally around as followers of Jesus. We love to sing about the cross. We boast in the cross. We celebrate the cross. Why? Because it's through 
through the cross that you and I are forgiven. It is through the cross that Jesus purchased our sin. It is through the cross that we are adopted into the family of God. It is through the cross that you and I are reconciled back to a holy God through Christ. And the beauty is those who turn from sin and trust in him by faith, those who, what the Bible says, repent and believe, you gain God. You see, you are saved from God by God. You see, you and I were under condemnation, but God steps in and he rescues us through the work of his son. But you see, Jesus didn't stay dead. Verse 3, he also presented himself alive. Jesus defeated death. Luke here, early in his book, he's validating the resurrection. He's holding up the resurrection as preeminent, saying this is something you got to grab hold of. Well, why? Why is it here in verse 3, Luke is already talking about the resurrection. It's because if Jesus was not raised, he was a liar, and our salvation is not secure in the early church, and what we do today is a big waste of time. You see, if Christ is not raised, what are we doing? If Christ is not raised, call home the missionaries, close up the church, let's go home, let's eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. If Jesus didn't defeat death, then guess what? What are we doing? Let's go home and watch football. Let's go live the lives that we want to go live. But if Christ has been raised, that changes everything. Everything hinges upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if Christ has been raised, then the early church has a message. If Christ has been raised, then you can square death right in the face and just stare at it and say, listen, I can defeat you, not because of me, but because of Christ. Through Jesus, I am a more than conqueror over death and hell. That sin no longer has the last word on your life that you don't have to fear your last day because Jesus already defeated it through his resurrection. You can have confidence in the truth of the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That indeed he is raised. He is the one who has defeated death on your behalf. You see, Luke writes, verse three, that after he suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs. I love that phrase, many convincing proofs. You can have confidence that Jesus really did rise from the grave, all right? You can have confidence that this is true. I put in your notes six convincing proofs of the resurrection. Now, because of the space that we have up on the screens, you're not gonna be able to see this, but on the Westwood app, I put more than 250 Bible verses that affirm these six proofs of the resurrection. Okay, so it's there, it's right there, but 250. Now listen, there are more than six. Okay, I just thought, man, we've got a, a short time. We got about an hour on a Sunday morning. I gotta pack as much in there as I can, but I want you all to get a chance to go have lunch today. Okay, you're welcome. 
Six convincing proofs. Number one is this, Jesus's empty tomb. Jesus's empty tomb. Multiple eyewitnesses attested to the empty tomb. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, John, Simon Peter, and even the soldiers who guarded the tomb. They're all eyewitnesses that the tomb was empty. The chief priests who hated Jesus, who helped orchestrate the death of Jesus, even they realized that the tomb was empty. They ended up bribing the soldiers with money and told them to lie about the disciples stealing Jesus' body. Why? Because they knew that the tomb was empty. You see, even the chief priests could not deny the empty tomb. They just made up a lie to minimize the collateral damage to their own reputation amongst their people, which is why they paid the soldiers hush money. See, Jesus' enemies could not deny that the tomb was empty. The second proof is that Jesus physically appeared to people. Throughout the New Testament, we see Jesus appearing to lots and lots of people after his resurrection, proving that he's alive. He met with people individually, kind of like Mary Magdalene or the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to them physically. We see him meeting with small groups, like with the apostles. We see Jesus meeting with large crowds of people, even up to 500 people at one time. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for I passed on to you as most important, but I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. Paul mentions here these 500 people at one time. And he's saying, listen, some of them are still alive. So he's writing to the church at Corinth saying, listen, you can go to Jerusalem. There are people who saw him alive and guess, they are, guess what? They're still alive. Some have died, but many are still alive. And you can go asking yourself. They will tell you, I saw the resurrected Jesus. He appeared to me physically, bodily. He is not dead. This is the gospel. We can have confidence with many convincing proofs. The third proof is that Jesus ate food with his disciples. You know, back in the 1800s, there was this understanding amongst a lot of liberal theologians that Jesus's resurrection was not physical. It was spiritual. Now, he's still dead outside Jerusalem, but his resurrection is a meaning to give his hope. It's a spiritual resurrection. Malarkey. That's hot garbage. How do I know this? Jesus ate food. Ghosts don't eat food. Doesn't happen. He, in his glorified, risen body, Jesus had multiple meals with his disciples. We see it along the Emmaus Road, where he sits down to have a meal with those two disciples. When he meets with his disciples in the upper room, he sits down and he says, y'all, I'm hungry. And they bring him bread and foot, fish. Now, you can imagine the disciples saying, oh, snap, he's alive. Here's some food. Let's see what happens. Right? Jesus defeated death. Remember when the disciples, after the resurrection, they decided, hey, let's go fishing. Early one morning on the Sea of Galilee, they're fishing. And they see somebody out in the distance. There's a small campfire. 
And that man on the, on the shore yelled at him and said, hey guys, throw your nets on the opposite side of the boat. And the disciples did it and all of a sudden this onslaught of fish came into the net and they were thinking, who is that? And Simon Peter says, I know who that is. That's the Lord. And he jumps out the boat and he makes a 500 yard swimming dash all the way to the campfire. And what does Jesus do? He says, come and eat. He cooks breakfast. He feeds his disciples. Jesus really did defeat death. You can bank your soul upon the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. And tomb is empty. He appeared physically. He ate with his disciples. Fourthly, he was physically touched by people. After his resurrection, we see Mary Magdalene in a posture in which, as I read it this week, I thought, oh God, how I long for that day, in which she is laying on the ground, prostrate, laying out her hands, and she's got hold of the feet of Jesus. She physically touched him. Remember how Jesus appeared to his disciples in the upper room? The door is locked because they don't want the Jews to come in and find him. And Jesus appears. They're thinking, oh my goodness, it's a ghost. But Jesus says, no, 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 it ain't a ghost. Come and touch me. And they touched his hands. And they touched his side where the spear had pierced him. Remember Thomas? He wasn't in the room at that time. Later on, the disciples said, hey, Thomas, guess what? Jesus really is alive. And he says, I will not believe unless I touch his hands and his side. Several days later, Jesus appears and says, Thomas, come here. Touch. See. And Thomas touches his side and Thomas touches his hands. And he says, oh, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, blessed are you because you have touched and believed. But blessed are those who have not touched. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. He was physically touchable. I want you to see the fifth proof. Eyewitnesses saw Jesus over and over and over. People saw him. They physically saw him. Now, if you and I saw a crime committed, we would go and sit on a jury, or not on the jury, in, in the witness stand, and we would give an account we would tell the jury, we would tell the lawyers, we would tell the judge, this is what I saw. Well, throughout the New Testament, there were people who said, this is what I saw. And here's what's interesting. When you get to the end of the Gospels, you see the disciples hiding, doors locked. As we're about to see in the book of Acts, they ain't hiding anymore. They are publicly preaching, going into the heart of the hornet's nest, preaching Jesus, saying he is alive. What in the world would make someone do something like that unless it was true? They saw him. They touched him. The tomb was empty. He was physically approachable. And sixth and finally, personal conversations with Jesus. Jesus spoke with multiple people on multiple occasions. He would encourage, rebuke, restore, instruct, command, and commission. And Luke is telling Theophilus, there are many convincing proofs. Y'all, Jesus really is alive. 
He is the son of God. And now all the promises that he's made are true. Now, for those who are in Christ, this means everything. You see, for the early church, they would face tremendous pain and difficulty and sufferings and trials and martyrdom. And they would not flinch. They would not shrink back. Why? Because the tomb was empty. Christ is risen. They knew that this gospel is true. And if Christ is risen, this changes everything. It means that we are a people who don't shrink back. We are a people who say, there are hills we will die on. We are a people who say, I believe this and I know that it's true. And my soul is at stake if I deny it. There's rock solid evidence that you can trust in this. And as you go through trials, as you go through suffering and pain, you can have confidence that your suffering does not have the last word. Jesus has the last word. And though you and I are outwardly wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day, and God is preparing for us a new body that's one day in which we are going to be restored back to be with him. There's coming a day in which you and I, we will suffer no more. We will hurt no more. We will cry no more. We will have on resurrected bodies, and we will celebrate with Christ and all the redeemed throughout the ages because of who he is and what he's done for us in the gospel. One of my good friends lives three doors down from me. His name's Derek, and he is a pastor at another church here in our community. And we yell at each other back and forth, and we preach at each other. We have a lot of fun. And the other, our neighbors are like, what is with these guys? So last week he came out and he yelled at me from his parking or his, uh, his driveway. He goes, preacher. I was like, big D. He said, what you got for me today? And I said, big D, Jesus is alive and nothing else matters. And he threw his hands up like this and he's doing this. <laughs> we had church in our driveway that day. Y'all, Jesus is alive, and nothing else matters. Rest your soul upon him. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ with all that you've got. He's alive. He defeated death. And so will you when you bank your soul upon him. So we see in the text Luke's summation of his gospel, Luke's confirmation of his resurrection. Thirdly, we see Luke's affirmation of the kingdom of God. During those 40 days after his resurrection, what did Jesus talk about? As he's with his disciples, what is he teaching them? Well, Luke tells us there at the end of verse 3, the kingdom of God. The kingdom, it shows up 44 times in Luke's gospel. Jesus was regularly preaching about the kingdom. Well, what is the kingdom? The kingdom is the rule and reign of Jesus over his people. It is the rule and reign of Jesus over his people. Jesus is the king who rules his kingdom with justice, truth, and mercy. That Jesus came to bring the kingdom. And for 40 days after his resurrection and before his ascension back up into heaven, he's teaching his disciples about the kingdom. At the book of Acts is how the kingdom is growing and the kingdom is advancing. This is what it looks like when Jesus is no longer present, that the kingdom advances through the people. But you see, what's interesting about the kingdom 
is that the kingdom is already and not yet. The kingdom is already here in the hearts of all who believe the gospel. I look across this room and I see people who are citizens of this kingdom or a people who have, belo- who have believed upon Christ and we belong to Christ and to one another as covenant members of a local church. We're a people of the kingdom and it's already here and yet the kingdom is not yet. For the kingdom is coming at the return of Christ in which he will establish firmly and securely his eternal kingdom and we will be with him forever. You see, the kingdom is already and the kingdom is not yet and yet the kingdom is advancing. The kingdom is moving forward and not even the gates of hell will stop it because the church of Jesus Christ will march forward. The kingdom of God will continue to prevail. And there have been governments who have sought to snuff out the kingdom. And guess what? They've just multiplied it. We're about to look at it when we get to Acts chapter 8, that when persecution falls on the death of Stephen, the church scatters and the gospel goes forth. That not even the blood of the martyrs can stop the spread of the kingdom. The name of Jesus will be known throughout the whole world through the people who belong to this kingdom. You see, the book of Acts begins with the kingdom, and the book of Acts ends with the kingdom. In fact, if you just you kept your finger right there in Acts 1-3, and you go to the back in Acts 28, we see the Apostle Paul, who's in Rome. He's under uh, arrest, house arrest. And we see here in Acts 28, verse 3, after arranging a day with him, many came to Paul at his lodging, From dawn to dusk, he expounded and testified about the kingdom of God. We move forward where in verse 30, Paul stayed two whole years in his own rented house. And he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That the kingdom of God is at the beginning of Acts, the kingdom of God is at the end of Acts, and the kingdom of God advances still today. And if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have banked your soul upon him, guess what? You are a citizen of an even greater kingdom. We're a part of the kingdom of God that is already here and is, all, is one day coming and we will one day be with him forever. So Kenneth, what do we do until then? What are we to be about? Well, it's your impact point and it's this. Share the gospel with your neighbors and watch the kingdom of God advance. The kingdom advances through the proclamation of the gospel. It is through people hearing the good news of Jesus and what he has done and they jump kingdoms. They go from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light as they hear the good news of Christ and they believe. Maybe you're here today and you're not a citizen of the kingdom. Maybe you are living in darkness. You're continually in your sin. You've not turned from your sin and trusted in Christ by faith. Well, today you can become a citizen of the kingdom by turning from your sin and trusting in Christ. If you're engaging with us online, I want to invite you to do that. That if you've not trusted in Jesus, then today turn from your sin. The Bible calls it repentance. It's a U-turn. It's a change of mind saying, I'm not going this way anymore. I'm going to turn and I'm going to follow Christ. Turn and trust in Jesus, and he will receive you. And through faith in Christ, you become a citizen of a kingdom that remains forever. You see, 
you and I are gathered here only because someone else shared the gospel with us. And it's all because of a sequel that was written that we see in the book of Acts. That what began in the life and ministry of Jesus on the hillside of Galilee has continued on for thousands of years and the kingdom moves forward. Nothing can stop it. All because the gospel is true. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ is ruling and reigning over all. And Christ is soon returning to call us home, to be in his eternal kingdom with all of the saints. I'm thankful for this sequel. I'm thankful that you and I were a part of this sequel. We're a part of this story that continues to be written until Jesus comes back. 